Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones. I'll be your host, and we come to you every Friday where we discuss, among other things, the content of our weekly roundup post from other weekends, which is sort of the Christian cosmopolitan grace and views summary of what to pay attention to out on the interweb. Today, in just a moment, I'll be joined by C.J. Green, who authored this week's Another Weekend's. And followed by C.J., we will have a special treat. We'll be joined by Paul Zoll, the one and only, to talk about the Trump phenomena and what it tells us about the human yearning and longing for freedom. But first, C.J. Green. Welcome back, C.J. Green. Thank you. To the Mocking Cast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah. And this week you have composed our weekend wrap, our weekly roundup, Another Week Ends. Mm-hmm. What are the highlights of Another Week Ends? Give me the rundown. So so the first one we have is uh, an article from Relevant. A magazine that was online. It's about Derek Webb, the singer, songwriter, Christian musician. Um, he just wrote this pretty bold um, confession about his infidelity. I guess with Sandra McCracken, I wasn't, I wasn't super um, up to date on their celebrity relationship, but I guess it was pretty dramatic for the Christian music world. Um, yeah, and he just, he just sort of wrote this long. Um, confession for relevant and it's really honest and um, clear and I thought quite admirable actually um, just in the ways that he sort of seems to be owning up to um, to his sins and just being honest about them so yeah yeah it's interesting that you note too that there's an interesting law gospel dynamic Mm -hmm. because he he doesn't just talk about grace too he does talk about the sting of the law and his own failure mm-hmm. before he really gets to kind of, you know, like Psalm 81 says, you know, grace being the honey from the rock. Uh, you know, it takes, sometimes it is in the, when the law t- devastates us, that it's actually only when the law devastates us, right? That we understand the redemptive power of grace. Yeah, absolutely. And even he, I mean, he doesn't even explicitly like proclaim the gospel in his confession. Like I was waiting for it and, um, but at the end, he he just sort of mentions like I he says I have a hard time believing that a God could could love a man who could do such things, and he sort of I mean that that is like sort of indirectly mentioning the gospel, but just the experience of it um, is not necessarily like something that's felt, um, which I think is really an astute observation. Yeah, I think about it's interesting that that. Who's the inspector in Les Miserables? I can't think of it. Inspector. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> the guy who the guy who tracks Jean Valjean, you know, in the ending scene of the movie, uh, you know, and I, I think it's this way in the novel too, but, mm-hmm. you know, he sees this good man before him, Jean Valjean, and 
and yet he's this convict who's guilty by the law. And so the inspector just kills himself. Mm. And I think that's what happens. Like the law, the law either breaks you in a way that opens you to mercy or it kills you. Mm. Yeah. If, if you, if you kind of are captive to it, which brings us to our next highlight, the piece here by Christopher Kakanos, right? Yeah. I guess that's how you would say his name from Pacific Standard. Uh-huh. Yeah, come all come all ye failures. Though we wake in fear of mediocrity, let us cease to be crippled by it. Yeah, and this one is kind of in a similar way. It's so pared down and confessional, but it um, it's not from a religious perspective. It's just this guy who is, um, yeah, I guess he's the head of a creative writing department, just sort of making the observation that so many of his friends feel like failures, even though they're complete artistic successes. Um, he's just talking about how like no matter where you go, no matter how high you climb the ladder of success, there's always the chance, the likely chance that you will feel in some way like a failure. Um, and he was, which is so depressing. <laughs> um, but he was just talking about how, um, like David Foster Wallace is just the sort of like the height of the law. He like, everybody respects him so deeply as an artist and, um, Yeah, and you, you, he he has this brilliant line. Where he was like, "When the end of the tour came out, I pulled down girl with curious hair and leaned my forehead against it as if through osmosis I could get some of David Foster Wallace's magic." Um, and then he says, "Whatever, whatever the success yardstick measures, it's never enough." Um, so yeah, I just thought that was interesting. That that's kind of like a a truth that everybody feels, no matter what your faith perspective is. There was a great episode of The West Wing, you know, the political drama yeah. on NBC where, where uh, President Bartlett is in therapy and the therapist says to him, the tough, it's a tough uh, curve you get measured against. Lincoln free, ha, freed the slaves and held together the country. And what will you be singing for us, Mr. Bartlett? Three straight quarters of economic growth? <laughs> <laughs> you know, even if you're president of the United States, what do you, I, I, I can imagine Barack Obama's sitting around thinking, what's my legacy going to be? How am I going to be remembered? Like, yeah. you got to the highest office in the world, and you still probably have all these issues. You're still, you know, insecure and wondering, you know, how you're going to be remembered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, I mean, the conclusion of this article, which is sort of the only conclusion that you can draw and still, like, not kill yourself, is that you just have to convince yourself that everything's okay, that it's okay to fail, um, which I think it, to to me, that is almost equally as depressing. Um, but luckily, like as Christians, we have a third option to turn towards, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That even though we fail and are sinners, He has died for us, and so that we might live. You know. Yeah, and I think we're also seldom good arbiters or or interpreters of our own stories. I mean, you think of we've been preaching through Exodus in my church, and you think of Moses. As he's, you know, it's this great line, you know, it sounds so depressing. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. You know, it's working for your father-in-law. You were the prince of Egypt, and now you're kind of, you know, down and out. And he probably thought his life was over. And yet, most of what Western culture remembers Moses for had not yet even happened. Hmm. And so I just think that, which brings us to the last highlight, right? A little bit about anxiety attacks and the fallacy of linear progression. Yeah, just this really 
brilliant blog post by Emily Hilden. Um, this, this, and I guess in the past couple of weeks, she posted it. Um, and she, she's just kind of talking about her own battles with, um, anxiety and, uh, depression and just how it's, it's not a linear, um, it's not a linear recovery path or a linear improvement path. You know, the, the human soul doesn't develop, um, doesn't progress in a linear way. You don't just sort of commit to a recovery program and get better all of a sudden. Um, hmm. and so she, she was just the, the last line of that blog post is just talking about how, um, how it might be more useful to learn how to live with struggles instead of just trying to wrap it up. Um, so I have, I mean, I personally have so many friends who have recurring bad habits or, um, yeah, emotional issues, depression, whatever it might be. You just want to wrap it up. And, um, yeah, me too. Me as well. Like, I definitely understand that sentiment of, um, yeah, just turning the page and trying to get, get it, get it over with. Um, and it's also hard because because you can easily compare yourself to the glamorous external lives of other people. But, um, yeah, chances are everybody has some sort of internal demons that they're struggling with. Um, and it's not necessarily just a linear progression to recovery. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking lately about uh, doubt and struggle and faith. And, you know, so much is psychological and temperament right so like there are some people in any given community 10 percent of the people are just like they're gonna believe in zealously in the tradition they're not like hey what's the bare minimum i need to believe they're kind of like look at all this neat stuff i get to believe oh virginity mary angels whatever you know mm -hmm. and there's probably 10 percent on the other end of the bell curve that are like hey i i struggle with belief i'm a skeptic but they're really vibrant people of faith like mother Teresa. and most of us are in the 80 percent where it's like some days it's more faith than fear and doubt. Other days, a little more fear and doubt than faith. And it's the problem is when we, I feel like when we, on the linear kind of thing, like communities either make the, the true believer temperament the standard and they sort of demonize a doubt and struggle, or they make the skeptical pole at the end of the bell curve, the normative thing. And then uh, instead of demonizing doubt and struggle, you valorize it. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's idealistic or, you know, full of a real genuine, like simple joy. Oh, you're not really, it's like Seinfeld. The theme was this show involves no hugging and no learning. You know, it's ultimate sort of ironic detachment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hilden's post also just kind of had this, what I thought was a beautiful illustration of how, um, like God kind of reveals to us the nonlinear process through, through nature, for an example. That's the example she gave of like the falling of leaves or the changing of seasons. It's kind of, the cyclical pattern, you will have ups and you will have downs. Um, and that's just sort of the process of sanctification. And like you said earlier, you're not always the best arbiter of your own story. Um, you won't maybe even be able to tell what the sanctification process looks like, um, but it's not in your control at the end of the day anyways. Well, thank you, CJ. I appreciate it. And I hope everybody, you know, if tomorrow morning is your, if you can sleep in a little bit and then wake up, sleepy-eyed and sit down with your coffee. This is a nice thing to open up your laptop or your tablet or your iPhone and peruse another weekend. Yeah.
Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Welcome, PZ, to the Mockingcast. I'm delighted, Scott. You're you're the man, and I've always admired you. And uh, I'm really glad uh, that you wanted to to have me on the Mockingcast. We're thrilled, and I wanted to ask you about something. So, I want to give you an impossible task. I want to ask you to explain what no pundit, what no political commentator, religious or irreligious seems to be able to explain which is the trump phenomena i mean every time it seems the guy is down and out and everybody says he can't be elected his poll numbers continue to increase and increase and you have some thoughts on this um i do and i've um I, uh, I've tried out a couple of these thoughts on a few of my friends and everybody uh, seems to uh, roll up their hands in horror because they're so um, afraid that uh, one might be supportive of uh, this uh, sort of um, demon with a glass hand, to quote the title of an old Outer Limits episode. And it's really very mistaken. And I feel for what it's worth that um, I, I do understand emotionally the tremendous appeal that uh, uh, elements in his uh, presentation have. And I share the appeal, that is to say, the attraction. And let me say why. And I'm speaking about this, um, uh, uh, trying to look at it um, from a mockingbird point of view or from a religious point of view or from a Christian point of view or from a gospel point of view as well as from my own um, sort of... Um, uh, inchoate uh, and slightly sub-rational, but I don't want to say irrational response to what's going on because I do think something extremely important is wrapped up with this uh, phenomenon. And I would uh, say a couple things about it. I would say first, I say that whether he wins or not, whether he wins an election or a nomination or whatever, he uh, is ushering in uh, concomitantly a bright wind of the spirit, and the spirit is freedom. Um, I'm just one person, but I have felt so long for years the requirement to bite my lips about any number of ish, uh, ideas I might wish to express that I've felt that we have sort of unconsciously drifted into sort of a Soviet uh, situation where no one or a great many people, let's say um, a half the people that you might meet, are afraid to say anything about all sorts of things for fear of uh, some titanic, uh, vicious a name calling uh, response. And so I was in a, a very ritzy uh, club in the Northeast recently with some people who were very thoughtful and uh, very highly placed from a human point of view. And they're Roman Catholics. And he, this was an establishment place. Everybody there was over the age of 50 or had grandchildren and they were all beautifully dressed. And she sort of suddenly said, well, you know, actually, I'm against 
such and such. She averred that she was against a particular thing. And she was so scared to say it. And she was she was coming out of her Catholicism. She wasn't coming out of any. She's not remotely right wing or remotely small town so-called America. And she was so afraid that someone might overhear uh, that she had an opinion that was based in her Catholicism that she looked all around herself and said and took her voice real down as she was sort of like maybe giving me a Masonic password or giving me a, a spy, some kind of spy thing. You know what I mean? I really. <laughs> deep throat in Watergate or something. And what that said to me was that this woman does not feel able to say what she has to say, which is no big deal. I mean, millions would agree with her, whatever it was she was saying. And she was under interdict. And I felt, you know, this is what it was like to be in, in Prague in 1958. This is what it was like. So there is uh, a bright wind of the spirit, uh, which whatever he is about – all of a sudden, people are able to say things that they have felt. And believe me, I'm not telling a lie. Anybody you run into in the street of all demographies and thoughts will tell you that they are terribly afraid to tread on the wrong corners. And that's not, that's not freedom. That's not, that's just not freedom. And the second thing about him, people say, well, he's, oh, he's so, you know, they'll use these awful words they always use, like bloviating or this big, huge, narcissistic ego with the hair and uh, all that. That may be uh, so, but when you are trying to challenge real power and these people who have run the world that I've lived in with an iron hand since about 1969, and I've, I've lived all my life in the East and the establishment, uh, almost all of it. And the people that have a kind of a death grip on the on the control, the only way you can possibly uh, get at this or blow down this edifice, which is really a house of cards with enormous transference attached to it, you have to work outside the system. You would have to get someone with a with an iron with with, a, with an insensitive uh, lead plate, you know, like in the Stephen King movie, uh, the 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 um, the uh, oh, I forget the name of it. It's the science fiction movie uh, with Stephen King. And the only reason a guy is able to get through the alien, the uh, outer space alien, uh, complete control over this small town is because he has a plate in his head because of an accident that prevents their radiation getting him. So you, you, if you're going to challenge the control in uh, any culture, it has to come from outside the system. Let me just add, that's why a Christ is always so remarkable, because he always gives another answer. He doesn't take the Pharisees on their own terms. He always he always offers a third option, or he always get, get, comes at it from a completely oblique angle. And the thing about the so-called fatuousness of Donald Trump, as he is perceived or spoken about, he, it's required that he have that. He has to, in order to, if he took on the powers that be on their own terms, no one can win. So he has to, it, it's absolutely essential that he be this highly unusual kind of unbelievable personality coming in from a virtually like another planet in order to, you, you could never lick it on its own terms. Power is never defeated on its own terms. And Christianly, we know this. Power is only defeated by something entirely fresh, new, and unpowerful on its own terms. So his uh, weirdness or his highly idiosyncratic, all the things that people say, oh, you know, I agree with some of the things he says, but I'd never vote for him. They don't understand. You have to, ha Jeremiah was that way. I mean, Jeremiah was impossible 
You would never have wanted Jeremiah to come to dinner. He was impossible. Habakkuk was the terrible. I mean, Micah was okay, all right? Maybe um, uh, Zephaniah was all right. But would you have wanted Amos to come and edit the Washington Post? No way. So his weirdness actually is typical of prophetic types throughout history. Luther was a very odd-looking character. I mean, uh, Bishop Bell in England spoke with an extremely high-pitched voice. He had no public presence at all. Jonathan Edwards was apparently the most boring person who you have ever met in your entire life. But his power in Enfield, Connecticut, was that he, he that for that very reason, he was able to come in and shake the tree. Now, there are two other things about Trump that are fascinating. If you, um, uh, uh, if you go and you, um, uh, Google Trump News. Just right now, go and Google Trump News any day of the week. 99% of the entries that come up are so negative and hate him so much and are so ad hominem. 19, I've, I've studied this. 99, maybe 95% on a bad day, but 99% will say today. You Google him and they are all against him. Now, in the kingdom of God, that is always a sign that something very powerful is happening. When you, if you had 40% people saying he was horrible, or 60%, or even 69%, but if you have 99%, see, it's like uh, Isaac Newton, uh, if you have 99% negative, you're going to have resistance. And the resist, it shows that something powerful is happening. So what you really mean is you're going to have 99% of people for him. Because the moment resistance, I mean, they, they, Jesus would never have had the effect he had if he hadn't been crucified. You, the, the resistance, it's just something about the way nature and reality is constructed. The resistance is, uh, is a sure sign of success. It's very similar to what happened with the Berlin Wall. I mean, with the Iron Curtain. This phenomenon strikes me as uh, very similar. Once it starts, because there's so much unreality. There's so much unreality and the anthropology is so absurd and the whole doctrine of human nature that we are surrounded with is so idiotically inapposite, non-apposite to the reality of human nature that, that when you finally get to it, it crumbles very quickly. So the edifice that the 99% who regard Trump as this horrible villain, it, it is so strong that once you tap it, you'll notice that the whole thing will start coming down, like what happened to the Iron Curtain. It was an, it once, once Lech Valenza started Lech Valenza, who's sort of an odd duck. I met him once. He's an odd duck. Once Lech Valenza started in Gdansk, it, it was in, in, in a march towards a fracturing of an ideological unreality that because of reality that within eight, nine years had completely changed the world. In my opinion, we're seeing something like this. I don't know if you've seen Dracula, Prince of Darkness. No, well, wait. Oh, I'm just kidding. It's Maybe, one of the, I'm trying to think of the Dracula movie. I'm cataloging the Dracula movies I've seen in my head. But <laughs> you know, one of the wonderful things about you is that you would actually say that that you're cataloging the Dracula movies in your head. That says such good things about you, Scott. But the Dracula Prince of Darkness is a 1966-67 Hammer horror, and at the end, Dracula is on ice. And the priest, it's a very Christian uh, version of the Dracula with Christopher Lee. And the priest, um, with a shotgun, starts shooting the ice that's around 
Dracula and the ice begins to crack and then it cracks and it completely cracks and Dracula goes on and as you underneath and as you know that vampires are destroyed by running water. So um, this is slightly funny or meant to be ironic, but what happens is you, you, you start the crack. It's like Trump is saying this strange character is saying the emperor has no clothes. And at that point, the place just. <gasps> so just for clarification in the analogy, Trump is not the vampire. He's the priest here. <laughs> yes. No, let me say that. No, let me yeah. clarify that. He is functioning as the the uh, the uh, actor is named uh, Keir, uh, uh, Andrew Keir, K-E-I-R. He is functioning as the prophet. He is functioning as the prophet. Uh, and prophets are always uh, weird. They, 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 it doesn't mean he's going to be president of the United States necessarily, or it doesn't mean that you'd want to spend a, a week of uh, you know golfing with him. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But it, it, something about the prophetic character has to be odd. Is there any tension between, you think, the, f the form of that? Because I, I think you're onto something. Uh, it's almost like, when I've thought about this, some of the appeal I think is we all know the pain of having to like be inauthentic with our in-laws or at the boardroom or with a neighbor or something. And then when you make that society-wide, when you, like you were saying before, you can't express it anywhere. Even if people maybe don't agree on all the all the issues, there's something <laughs> liberating about seeing somebody who seems like they're they're free to speak. But is there tension between the form of that and the content, like? Well, uh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. What I want to say is there's a tension, but it's a useful tension. If you say, if I say I think Trump is doing us good, that does not necessarily, I'm, I agree ideologically with everything Trump is saying. Because, see, it's not really ultimately about ideology. The whole thing is not really about left and right. It's about control and power on the part of what today is ideologically the left, but it could be the right. But in this case, it have, it's about control and power versus freedom and uh, s s s extemporaneity and the ability to simply say what you have to say. What's happened is people just – it's not so much what they have to say, but the fact that they haven't been able to say whatever it is they have to say. And that is really widely understood, and that goes across all races and ethnicities. There's a tremendous – so what he says, it's not so much what he says, is the fact that this personality, this sort of larger-than-life fellow, does say what he thinks. You might say that the hope is not what Trump thinks. The hope is Trump. The hope is a man who's willing, for whatever reasons – and I believe – they're primarily eleemosynary. I do believe he's actually, I believe he's probably altruistic. Deeply, maybe not superficially, but no one could take the heat, could be referred to as Adolf Hitler and a, a slimy worm a thousand times an hour over the, over the world and not feel it. He's got to be a human being. So something inside him is saying, I'm doing this because ultimately I, I have to do it. There's a sense of calling. Now, let me say one other thing that relates tremendously to what I've tried to do in Mockingbird and in preaching. And again, I'm not endorsing the ideology. I'm endorsing his freedom to say what he actually feels, which we have lost in the United States. So that, that is a, I've been in the church for, since I was tiny and I've been an ordained over 35 years and even in my denomination, if you said certain things that were very uh, obvious to other kinds of Christians, you, you, you simply couldn't get a job.
I mean, if you believed certain things, if you had a forensic view of the atonement, or if you said that the Bible was the inspired word of God in a formal manner, you, 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 you would never get a job. I mean, you, you, you would be labeled. And that's what you don't want to have any environment, whether it's Christian or the world. You, you want to have the freedom to say what you have to say and then perhaps get some feedback and you may alter in the context of equality of discourse and so on. But I want to say one other thing, Scott. He said something in Lowell. Now, Joe, by the way, Jack Kerouac would have been for Trump. Uh, Kerouac, um, I'm certain of it, uh, but Kerouac uh, was from Lowell. And, uh, you, need Trump- to, you need to write Trump's uh, uh, campaign people and say, look, I want to give you a, a post-mortem endorsement from Jack Kerouac. <laughs> yeah, you need, I'll let somebody else do that. But you want to do it but because Kerouac was from Lowell, right? And last night uh, I listened to to a, a Trump speech, and he said one remarkable thing that preachers do not understand. He said, "I am the only one of the candidates who doesn't use a teleprompter." He said, "I have not yet given a talk, and he does it every day from a script, not once." He said, I may have a fact sheet here, or I may have some notes to remind me of something, just like I do. But um, he is entirely extemporary. But he went on to say, he said, therefore, you're not getting something canned. You're not getting something that's been calculated to fit this or that group of people or whatever it is. You're getting me. And then he said, the co- communi- it's all about communication. He said, it's what I say heart to heart. Now, that is what a sermon is. I've been trying to tell this to people for 30 years, and no one ever believes me unless, until they start doing it. And then they find that as preachers, if they have a message heart to heart, and if they see themselves as talking to one individual in the congregation, perhaps the troubled one they know, not the whole, not as a group, but one person, they inevitably speak to everybody because heart always speaks to heart. It's like a dog whistle. And then it touches the whole herd. But then he said one other thing. He said, what I'm really talking about here is love. Now, he meant love in the true sense of communication. Love is when my heart, which is something I feel sincerely about, and I say it without trying to demean you or without trying to filter it to please you, but I do say it out of sincerity, touches your heart. And that's when a sermon is electrical. Well, last night in Lowell, when he got to the point talking about communication, teleprompters, and love, he really should have been teaching homiletics 101 at any seminary you want to name, of any denomination you want to name, because he was the perfect exemplar of what Phillips Brooks used to call, remember, these theologians, they talk about it, but they never think really believe it. Phillips Brooks said, and he was in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, Church of the Holy Trinity. Yeah, on Rittenhouse Square. That's where a little town of Bethlehem was written. It's a, I I could comment today, but I won't. He was at that church. He said that a sermon is truth through personality. Now, we heard that all these years. We've heard it as some kind of cliche, but no one ever acts on it. But a real sermon is Paul, who has all his warts and his neuroses and all his aspirations and all his hurts and some of his natural whatever it is, speaking out of the whole soup of his person, a message from God that he has received through the good news of of the New Testament. And he is trying to say that. And if he does that in sincerity, he will never not communicate. And what I saw last night was Phillips Brooks in the place of uh, who, of, of Trump speaking truth through personality, the result of which was connection. 
I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. I remember at a large Presbyterian church uh, when I was in seminary, a pastor, he's a great guy, but he was reading manuscript sermons and he was reading a personal illustration. <laughs> and I thought, it, this sounds like you're reading from a novel and one you don't connect with. Like you're not an excited person reading a passage from a novel, but you sound like you're kind of doing a middle school recitation. And yes. it's just it, – it, it, and this person is a lovely person. So it's, it's like the person I know is not the person I hear. That's what you're saying. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Because you know the person's a great guy. Yeah. But what's happened is he's fallen into some kind of a picture or trope or narrative of himself that is distanced by means of the script. And what I saw in Trump with his awkwardness and his, and he was being interrupted all the time and his, his digressions. I mean, it was really a mess at one level. But what you felt was here is a guy who's trying to do something he believes from his heart. And you know what? He's, he's real. And when you see so many of other people in public life, you listen to them and you just want to say, you know, gag me with a spoon. They may look good. They may sound good, but they're not speaking from their heart. That is the success and the power. Now, Gorbachev had this and Boris Yeltsin had it. And that's why uh, Yeltsin had it. He was a drunk, but he was a wonderful drunk. He was like Art Carney getting up there, you know, and, 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 and producing a revolution. And in a way, that's usually how these tectonic shifts, which probably who knows where it'll go. And it might be that his successor was no good, but they almost always start from some kind of unusual personality who hears something and is willing to say it for some odd reason and then um, is able to cause people to uh, kind of feel that they've been heard. Well, PZ, thank you. We might have to make you the regular Mockingbird political correspondent because that was incredibly insightful and uh, not just about the, you didn't just teach us some things about the electoral landscape but i think you probably taught us some things about ourselves so thank you scott old pirates yes they rob i sold i to the merchant ship minutes after they took thanks again for joining us for yet another mocking cast we hope you enjoyed it and if you did please go over on itunes and give us a rating and a review Hopefully a positive one. And we'll see you next week. In this generation, triumphantly, won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever had, redemption songs. Redemption song.